Hello, everybody. Yesterday, I did something very exciting. I got my second vax, so I'm feeling a little bit maybe sleepy today, but overall, not so bad. Just feels like a little bruise on the arm. No fever or anything, so that's good. Pretty stoked about that. Anyways, this is the Hacker Noon Podcast, and my name is Amy Tom. Thank you very much for tuning in today. I am talking to Gil Alouche, who is the CEO of Metadata.io, and Tom Coburn, who is the CEO of Jebit. Hacker Noon Podcast. Thank you very much for joining me, guys. Excited Thank you for having us. I'm excited to be here. So I would like to talk to you guys today about using marketing data to make decisions and starting a company based on that. I would love to start off at the very beginning. Gil, could you tell me what your very first job was? Very first job? Ah, Ever. I mean, my first, not the, way, the first way I made money, the first like official job. I want Actually, I want to know both now. The first time I made money, I think I was eight years old. Uh, I used to bring firecrackers from France for really cheap because I was a kid. No one was suspicious. And I would sell them for like legit eight, ten times the price to the rich kids <laughs> in my class. Wait. Wait, where did you grow up? Sorry. I grew up in Israel, but my family is also from France. Okay, so your family would go on like a vacation to France and you would pick up firecrackers. Your parents let you do this? <laughs> Not only did they let me do it, they would sometimes invest and help me <laughs> just like get a nice chunk before. And I would sell it both at the stores in my hometown as well as to the kids who were interested. Amazing. Okay. And then what was your first official paid job? Official paid job. I handed out brochures to a computer programming school that I studied in. Okay. Wow. Was this also in Israel? It was also in Israel, in my hometown. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Cool. And Tom, what was your very first job? I like the way Gil answered it. A first way of making money and then first mm -hmm. job. The first time I tried to make money, I got in trouble. It was in sixth grade because I had started a March Madness bracket with half <laughs> the kids in my grade and I was collecting $20 from everyone. And then the teachers found out and I had to give all the money back. So I think what? your business was more successful uh, than mine was because I didn't actually make any money. And then my first like actual job that I had a boss and had to show up for was working at a golf course. So. I was a okay. big golfer growing up and I figured I should combine my passion for golf and work at a golf course, which I, in hindsight, wasn't a great idea because I just had to stand at the golf course all day and wash other people's clubs mm -hmm. and get the carts ready for them while they played golf. But yeah. that was my first job. Okay. Yeah. So you were doing more of like the caddy stuff, not like in the restaurant or something. I wasn't in the restaurant. Yeah. I was okay. out in the, the bag room, they call it where all right. you get all right. the carts ready. Okay. And then, okay, now let's move on to the next stage of your life. Gil, what did you do after? I had a lot of jobs as a kid. So I worked as a computer technician in a computer technician kind of store back when there were still desktops and, and people were fixing their PCs. I used to operate a trampoline in an amusement park. What? <laughs> okay. Yep. Wait, what country? Israel. This is all okay. Israel. Okay. I only okay. moved out and lived in a different country when I was 24. Okay. <laughs> a trampoline uh, yeah. operator, okay. It is random. That, that's Did what I've done. Go to post secondary. 
What is post-secondary? College? University? Oh, yes. So I went, first of all, I went to the army because it's Israel. And after that, I went for a long trip in the Far East. And then I went to do my college and then graduate school. I actually started my computer science degree when I was like classes, remote classes. Okay. Okay. So you have a computer science degree. Computer science degree and an MBA. Yep. Okay, cool. And then when did you move to the States? At 24, so 2007, the end of 2007. And, and what was your first job when we got here? I had, I was do, I was creating websites for my college classmates. That was just to make some money. And then I had an internship at SAP, in SAP in Palo Alto, maybe okay. eight months after I started, after I arrived to the US. Yeah. Okay, cool. And Tom, tell me about what happened after the golf course. <laughs> I, a junior of high school, I got really into the science. Mm -hmm. I was forced to do science fair for a chemistry class I wanted to take, and I really didn't want to do it. And I've learned about myself when I do things, I tend to go all in. So I ended up going very all in on science fair. My partner and I went pretty far with it, and I ended up landing internships to work in different chemistry labs through that. So I spent summers working in chemistry labs, which led me going to Boston College where I went fully convinced I was going to be a biology and chemistry double Mm. major and go become a doctor. And Mm. clearly I didn't end up going that route, but that is, that is where I was at when I got to college. Okay. So when you, do do you have a degree in medical things? (laughs) I I technically don't have a degree. I ended up leaving college early to do Jebit, but at the time I left, I was a biology, I had dropped the chemistry. I was a biology and theology double major. So those were the oh, things okay. I was studying. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Someday okay. I'll go back and get a diploma though. I promised my grandma. So. Okay. All right. I have a diploma too. Why did you drop the science then? I only dropped the chemistry part. I stuck with biology, but I just... What made you want to get not use the science education that you had and start Jebit? Honestly, I just fell in love with the idea of starting a company. Our school has a business plan competition like many other schools do, and all my roommates were in the business school. So Mm -hmm. me and them decided to team up and pitch a business idea. And freshman year, we tried to pitch a medical device idea because we were trying to combine my passion for science and theirs for business And just no one believed us that a bunch of freshmen in college were going to start a medical device. Probably fair. None of us had a medical degree. So when we came back for sophomore year, we just tried to brainstorm ideas that would be more believable. A bunch of sophomores in college would be able to produce. And I I ended up that year coming up with the original kernel of the idea that was Jebit. We've evolved Mm. a lot since then. But um, long story short, we won the competition. And We did a summer program with a venture capitalist in Boston who had gone to Boston College, our school, and was an alumni. And that summer changed my life. After having a whole summer to work on the business full-time, I shifted the focus away from medical school to I actually want to start this company and and go make it happen. And how long ago was that? Let's see. That was about a decade ago now. Yeah, that was the summer of 2011 between my sophomore and junior years of college. Okay, wow. Can I just say that you do not look like you're a decade out of college? Let's go. <laughs> yeah. Huge. <laughs> okay, cool. How many people did you found Jebit with? There's different like phases of that. I had four friends that we won the business plan competition with. And then mm-hmm. 
only two of them actually wanted to work on the idea. It's one thing to just pitch it and win a competition. It's another thing to say, now we're actually going to go work on it. And then none of them ended up dropping out with me. I ended up dropping out with two new co-founders that I met, a second wave of co-founders, I guess you could call it. Similarly, it's a whole nother ballgame to say, I'm actually going to leave school and go work on this business full time. And then when I did drop out, we had a team of over 50 students that were working with us. That was how we built the company for the two years I was in school. So we had all these students working with us. And so five of them, I ended up hiring right as they graduated six months Mm -hmm. after I dropped out because we had raised a seed round of funding. So there's also a founding team of them as well. So there's three, Mm -hmm. three different chunks, depending on how you want to look at it. Okay. So you hired people almost right out of the gate then. It would be it hire is an interesting word. Yeah. They all were just helping. So I was just a student in college with no, yeah. we had no money. We, it wasn't yeah. like a full-time job for anyone, but yes, we had, I guess, 50 students. I think it was 52 students at its peak were volunteering and, and wow, helping. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. It was a and lot of fun. Gil, I believe you are also a co-founder, right? I, today I'm a single founder. I is similar to Tom. There are a few different rounds with co-founders. I started a company with, and I started on my own. I brought in two founders and they were working with me each for about two years. And they went on to do different things. One of them started a new company and one of them is working at a company. Okay. Do you, did you feel like at the time when you started, you needed a co-founder or if you could do it again, would you have done it on your own? Gil? I think you hit it right. I thought I needed a co-founder when I started. I thought this is the only way to go. I heard so many anecdotal statements like, no one wants to invest in a single founder. You have to have someone to to do this with. And I think a lot of it is there is merit to it. But I also realized that absolutely I can build a company as a single founder, it doesn't mean that I'm working on a company on my own. I can still have partners in the company. They can still have a material equity stake in the company. They don't have to be co-founder who started from scratch. Okay. Tom, how do you feel about the founder versus co-founder argument? I feel like I needed it. Now, part of that might be I was a biology major with no degree and no ability to code trying to start a software company in the marketing world. So I had no actual like skills on paper towards what we were trying to do. But as a first time founder, uh, to me, it was critical having a couple of co-founders around and like a couple other people that were there with me when we were having really bad times and there to celebrate with them. We were having good times. I think now being a lot later into it. Now I have a lot more confidence. I could do it on my own if I wanted. I just personally wouldn't want to. If I start another company again someday, I would want to do it with a couple of my friends and people I've co-founded this one with and maybe new people we meet, who knows. But I just, I like that that team dynamic myself, but everyone's different, obviously. Yeah, definitely. Okay, cool. Now, Gil, I would love to learn about the story of how Metadata got started. Yeah, absolutely. I went to Boston, very familiar with Cleveland Circle and Boston College. I drank a lot of beers over there. So I went to Boston to... Gil, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but right when we left school, we got a house in Cleveland Circle and we had 14 people living in a nine-bedroom house all working for the company for a year. Oh, wow. wow. That must have been an experience. It was, yeah. City side uh, bar. We were right right behind that. So, yeah. 
lots of memories from Boston. Uh, we yeah, can talk yeah. about it all day. So I went to Boston to do my MBA. I, I ended up after call after my graduate school, I spent almost a decade working uh, in marketing, running marketing for three B2B startups. And I realized that as an engineer running marketing, I actually, especially in B2B, I have a a competitive advantage because B2B marketing became extremely technical and quantitative uh, job. So I've done that for, I think, something like eight years. And I realized I'm on the path to being a CMO that makes lots of money. But what I really wanted to do is start a company. And what better way of besides making myself a commodity? And so I started a company so that you don't have to hire software engineers to help you with your technical marketing. And so I, I had this idea. I, I resigned from my last VP of marketing job. And in the same conversation, I told him, but you should hire me as, as a consultant because I'm starting a consultancy. And, and that was essentially my first customer. And uh, I think a year later, I, was, uh, I already had a good idea of what I'm building. I was in a Bessemer Venture, Bessemer Venture Partner event, talking to maybe 20 CMOs and telling about, about experimentation and, and data-driven marketing. So many of them were interested in the middle of the, there was a lunch break. And I took the lunch break to go on LinkedIn and change quickly to founder so that after the lunch break, I can tell people, actually, if you want to work with me, I have a company. And so it happened right there on the spot. Oh, so you just made it. Okay. Wow. What a power move. <laughs> nice. And what, what year was this? This was 2016. Okay. Okay. So now it's been about five years since you started that. And how many people are working at your company now? I think we have about 55 people. 55 people. Okay, cool. And how would you have described your growth over the past five years? Like this and then like that. Oh, yeah. So yeah, the first three years, we were just building IP. We just got our fifth patent. We were just building technology in the marketing space. It's very easy to start, very hard to finish strong. I don't know if Tom agrees. Uh, and so we wanted to build a little monster with a lot of technology, a robust uh, and novel technology. They only then go to market when we really have something differentiated. And that's what we've done. We only went to market uh, maybe two, two and a half years ago. And then the growth happened. And we also have to con we had to conserve cash because I think most startups in the first few years, the job, especially if you have something novel that is innovative, you have to survive for the market to recognize what you're what you're building and to use it and so we really waited to see until we knew product market fit is clear and then scaled so it took you two and a half years before you officially launched like the product to the market okay wow that's yep. a lot of development work yeah it was, it was development work it wasn't in a silo like we were trying to find the customer, see what exactly is working, what is not working. And that was a long feedback loop. I would say two to two and a half years, mm. uh, getting that feedback loop, getting to a really good product market fit, and yeah. then going to market with it. Cool. Okay. And Tom, how did Jebit become Jebit? <laughs> yeah. So I hit on a little bit of it earlier with, we just wanted to start a company. We came up with the kernel of the idea for Jebit and won the business plan competition. The idea I dropped out of school with and raised $2 million of seed funding on was we literally were a website for college kids where they could get paid to answer questions about brands. Crazy to me in hindsight, we raised money on that idea. It had a lot of issues and challenge with scaling it, but we shut that down in 2015 and pivoted into the ultimate version of 
of what Jebit is today. To answer some of the questions that you were asking, Gil, we're around the same size now, about 50 people. And the growth has been crazy up and down over the years, but it's been a really good last year and a half or so as we've just pivoted and evolved out of Mm. this like marketplace for college kids to make cash to being a true enterprise marketing platform now that many of the largest brands in the world license. Yeah, that's a bit Mm. of a story, the story at a high level. Okay. How did you decide when was the right time to pivot your business? We had raised money and we knew we had runway to figure it out. And we were just banging our heads against the wall with a lot of the problems. And for us, it was two problems. It was first not feeling like brands were getting genuine interactions with the students because they were just getting paid and the students didn't really care about the brands there. And we knew that even if the brands didn't fully realize it. And uh, the other one was, it was just a challenge being a marketplace and building both sides. And I think for us, we just all had an honest conversation, me and my co-founders of, is this the business we dropped out of school to start? And it was like a pretty resounding, just gut feeling of no, like, it's just Mm -hmm. not, could we have made it successful? Probably. I'm sure we could have grown it and and sold it and had a a decent outcome, but it just wasn't something we felt was going to be like a real core of any big brands marketing Mm. platform and something that would be a part of that core tech stack and something that they love to use every day and gives them great value. And so the problem was we had no idea what we were going to build. We just knew all the problems of our current business and we really didn't have a vision yet of where we wanted to take it. But I went to a board meeting and I told my investors a bit of what I was just saying. And Thankfully, we were very lucky and our investors told us, look, we invested in you and your team more than we invested in the idea. So if you guys want to pivot this to something different, we support you on that. Just don't spend a lot of our money while you're doing it. So we agreed to not hire anyone until we figured out the new model. I think the company was like eight people at the time. So it was basically, okay, the eight of us are going to go figure out you know, what the future of this business is. But how did you know it wasn't working or it wasn't what you intended? gut feeling? I think just a gut feeling. Yeah. It's not like objectively the business wasn't working. We were growing. Revenues were growing every month. Mm. We had raised money. It was just like, we just kind of knew this has a certain, we didn't love the business itself because the incentivized nature. And then I think we just Mm -hmm. knew some of the challenges of scaling it with being a marketplace. And Mm -hmm. yeah, I, I don't, I guess gut feeling, just a lot of conversations with users, customers, each other, things like but then that's not really gut feeling that's you really understand your marketplace you understand your yes, customers fair, mm-hmm. fair. <laughs> yeah yes. okay okay gut feeling from being in the business living and breathing it every day for two mm-hmm. years yeah <laughs> okay yeah so gail i want to learn more about scaling a business i think like for me as a young entrepreneur or young aspiring entrepreneur i get confused about like how to grow quick, like when it's quick too, like how to scale your business and make sure that your customers are happy, make sure you're still making money, make sure you still have money to pay your employees. So can you describe business scalability to me and some of the problems that you might've encountered and lessons you've learned? Yeah. From all the million mistakes I've made, definitely there are some insights. (laughs) I will say, I don't think I still have the the street creds yet to talk about scale because I don't know, 55, 60 people is, I don't think it's really yet. You've got more street cred than I do. But I will say the, I think one of the biggest lessons that I've learned, there are a few pillars, but one of them is 
to it's like a classic cliche sentence higher slow fire fast big one not to get into I, I remember I had a conversation with um with a with an investor who told me Gil you're doing great company is doing amazing we want to put in we want to put more money like you should raise the next round it's like this sounds great they said like we're gonna you can hire like five six new sales people and it's like we don't we don't have a real product yet it's gonna just crash and burn <laughs> and then we had this 20 minutes of argument where was, no you have to hire these people I want to put all this money and I was like we'll die we'll die just fast with lots of money and uh, eventually he's like I'm not gonna give you the money I was like okay so I was like you're not gonna be an investor uh, but that was I, I think the, the right decision because many times you're forced to grow not really because you want to but because others tell you to mm-hmm. and you're not ready for it and I think we, it's important to, to understand what stage you are and try, try to reverse engineer uh, the future a little bit. Uh, I think another one is to really understand your unit economics before you scale, to see that you are about to grow something that is sustainable. Like if your customer acquisition costs are through the roof or like Tom was mentioning, the business just seems to have, there's, there's going to be a big bottleneck or a big limitation fairly soon. And you already know it two years ahead of time. You don't have to actually mm-hmm. get there and then regret there getting there. You can uh, think about it ahead of time. I think these are, these are really the, the big ones. There's another one that if, if you told me I'm going to talk about this five years ago, I would laugh. But culture is a big piece too. If you build a company, it's an org uh, that has a strong good strong culture that present, represents what you want like for us it's like we have the super authentic the opposite of corporate america um, genuine hustle all those good uh, traits when you grow it's very easy to bring in by mistake or just by lack of time folks that will change that either lower the bar or or just change the culture to the worse and it's million percent up to you to fix it immediately mm-hmm. so you brought in someone that reduces the bar you're thinking oh, i don't want to fire because everyone's going to be sad and demoralized but and, and demoralized but actually the moment you do that they're going to tell you what took you so long uh, and so fire fast fire quickly is that what you said yeah okay interesting yeah i think that i would have anxiety about firing people <laughs> but I think that's like my social nature and I've also never had to do that, like managing people. And I guess that's part of the job. Absolutely. And I think it's actually, it's for people's best interest. Sometimes when you fire, when someone is, is not performing well, or they're not happy, or they're just not a fit, they know it usually. And they're not happy either. They're not really fulfilled. They're not living in fear, but not really happy and fulfilled and someone has to do it someone has to talk about the elephant in the room this is obviously not a good fit let's not be fearful of the future of the, the uncertainty we can do it in a very human you can, you can do it in the best way actually doing it is i think the right decision you can give them months of severance or insurance if they have some of their family and, and things like you can help them find their next job you can end very amicably even on a really good note versus letting it linger until it's like not a good breakup. Tom, what are some things that you wish you knew about scaling? First of all, I agree with everything that he just said. And then secondly, I think it's really interesting how you asked the question of, I want to know how to grow fast. Mm-hmm. And if you listen to both of our stories, it You're wasn't like, no, fast. No, 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 no. <laughs> like what yeah, did you okay. say? Three, three years of this and then yeah. this. And then what did I just tell you? From 2011 to 2015, I was like, scaling this thing, I eventually shut down and Mm -hmm. rebuilt the whole thing. 
Mm-hmm. Like, I, yeah, that gives I me anxiety. Totally, I completely underestimated how long it was going to take to mm-hmm. get there. And I definitely in the early years chased revenue growth when I should have been chasing figuring out the product people actually need and building that product. Mm. I just had to learn that the hard way. And I don't know how you could have convinced 19 year old me anything different, like looking back on it. I read the books. I read the startup books. I knew like, go find product market fit, but you just convince yourself you have it because you closed five deals Mm -hmm. when in reality, they're not using the platform and three of them churn. And you're like, you're like, but they churn because they were just a bad fit. We still have product market fit. And you just, you convince yourself you have these things because you want to have these things. And that's for sure my biggest learning that I will never do again now with whatever I start next is like, the next time around, I'll just do it totally different. And we had mm. Gilly had the same thing as you. We had early investors and it wasn't like I felt a ridiculous amount of pressure from them, but it was like they wanted to see revenue growth. They had invested in this business. That's what they want to see. And so you just, in, in hindsight, it was unhealthy, but it didn't really feel unhealthy at the time. You're just chasing closing deals and selling and things like that. But in reality, if I knew what I had known now, we could have saved ourselves mm. years of time, just like nailing the product first. And then really scale once you've nailed that. Mm. If you had known what you know now about how long Jebit was going to take to build and how much work it was going to be, would you still have done it? Absolutely. I've loved it. There's a ton of hard times for sure. There's a lot of stress. There's real sacrifices you make with how much you can see friends and family or just have leisure time and things like that. But I've loved it. It's been such an awesome journey. Mm Mm-hmm. Would you have started the same product or service? Is well, that something like, that you want to yeah. ha- would have hung your hat on ten years ago? If you had- the easy thing to say now is I just would have built what we do today first instead <laughs> of going through six years of pivoting and, yeah. and learning and things like that. But it's like one of those things. The only reason we got to where we are today is because we went through all that pain and we sat down with so many customers and we watched so many early customers churn and learned why they churned and learned why we hadn't built the thing they really needed yet. And it's just the thing with us is we knew nothing about the industry, right? Like it wasn't like we'd been in this industry for 20 years and had a career and knew the exact problem and knew this. We were just a bunch of young, energetic kids coming out of college saying, we want to go start something and we're Mm -hmm. willing to work really hard at it. And we know we don't know the industry, so we know we're going to have to work harder than everyone else. And Yes, I do think some elements of that actually helped us because I think we took a really fresh look at the industry. And I think we there's that saying of like beginner's mind or we, we call it show shin at Jebit is like the term for it. And we talk about that a lot. I think that helped us to some degree, but it also definitely hurt us that we knew nothing about the industry and we were trying mm-hmm. to figure out what the hell to build. Yeah, crazy journey for sure. So as a young person who doesn't have the industry experience, what was it like raising capital? hard. <laughs> yeah. How yeah. did you get people to believe in you? Um, I think in hindsight, they just saw how hard we were working and how motivated we were. And I think they just were willing to bet on us that we were going to mm-hmm. figure it out. And I don't really think you can fake that. That was mm-hmm. just the reality. Because like you said, it was less about the product that you were building and more about you, right? Yeah. In hindsight, I'm shocked, but also understand it, why our investors acted the way when we went into that board meeting at the end of 2013 and said, 
we want to pivot the whole business. And when they said, what do you want to pivot it to? I naively said, oh, I'm not sure yet. I haven't figured that out. And like, they jumped right into, that's fine. We didn't invest in this product. We invested in you and your team. So let's go figure it out together. And I help a lot of college entrepreneurs now and and try to help younger entrepreneurs. And it's, again, it's going to sound cliche, but it's so true. Like the team and the people behind it are 10 times more important in the early days than whatever the idea is or the market is or whatever it is. Like those things matter, obviously, but they're not the most important piece. Mm-hmm. So would you say that you have to be very charismatic in order to get funding? Is I don't think it's, that? I don't think it's, I don't know if charisma is the exact word. I, I think being dedicated and resilient and like self-aware and showing you're coachable and you're willing to learn and pivot. I think those things are much more important than current. Gil, what was your experience like raising capital for the first time? just want to say it's always nice to hear so many of the absolute truth from fellow entrepreneurs. So many of it's, what you say is like, it's fun because these are, yeah. these are normally one-on-one. Like I'm the only entrepreneur on this call. It's fun to have two and hear what you're saying as well. That's cool. So I missed your question, Amy, forgive me. Oh, what was your experience like when you raised capital for the first time? Oh, it was shit. It was terrible. I, no one wanted to invest in me. I remember I actually went to an investor. So I was a good marketer and I, I got a chance to go to board meetings and, and show the results and talk to partners. And I thought, great, I'm going to all going to invest in me later. And I remember I went to a, an investor and I showed you my product and he was like, okay. Then he said, Gil, I don't think you have a business here or a product and I'm not interested in investing. And I won't say the name of the VC, but we're not interested in investing either. I'm just like, like the energy level goes to 2%. And then of course he ends up with, if I would love to keep in touch, you should let me know how you progress. And I told him like, dude, definitely not going to keep in touch. It doesn't sound like you have any belief in, in me or this product. I think I'm just going to go back and, and do some more work, probably find different partners. And that's true. That was that at the beginning. That was, I maybe I had three of these conversations and I said, I'm not going to go to investors to begin with. I went back, worked on the business, got it to a different place. And then life was very different. Suddenly I would get inquiries. Suddenly I think we joined 500 startups and Alchemist and it became a lot easier. I don't think it's still easy for me. I just snap my finger and I go and raise another round. It's not like that, but Mm -hmm. knowing the game and the process and mostly understanding the pattern recognition that VCs have with businesses, Mm -hmm. like what exactly do they look for? Because they see a thousand businesses and so their eyes and their brain are just like looking for particular signals knowing that and if you want funding optimizing for those patterns the signals makes for a very different process Mm, and experience you gotta know the game what's the game in one word i would say trend is the biggest game like every kpi that you have like ARR, NRR, gross dollar retention like all of those metrics talked about like CAC to LTV like all of those things the absolute number matters significantly less than the trajectory itself. And when you know that early on, you can basically reverse engineer in a very pragmatic, even conservative way, your path to guarantee almost that you're fitting, that you fit that, that trend. To, to Tom's point, like, and I did the same mistake. Are you thinking about revenue or do I have to get customers? Do I have to sell right now, even though I don't really have something that is sustainable? And you think the answer is yes, because you're, there is some thing that you think you have to continue versus you can really stop 
and I admire that you went to your board, by the way, and told them I am, I'm going to pivot and I don't know what. That, was, that must have taken uh, a lot of courage. And I think that's really great and very healthy to do. You can do that. I remember talking to Manny Medina. He's the CEO of Outreach. Um, like years ago in the roof, like companies about to, to, to crash and burn. We have no cash. My product is really not working at all. And he told me, Gil, just start, just rebuild the product again. I was like, Manny, what do you mean? I already like working at the company for two years, a year and a half. He's like, he's like dude, I replaced my product. Like I, I trashed it and built it again five times. I, was, I told him, really? Five times you built Outreach? He told me, yeah. I was like, okay, this is, people have done this before. I'm going to try to do this too. Okay. I think we've done it three times at Javit, if I nice. remember correctly. Yeah. Three, three times, times here as well. Yeah. <laughs> okay, interesting. So don't be afraid to start again. Don't be afraid to start again. Don't be afraid to reinvent everything about the business mm. that you think should be reinvented. There is no, every day you can decide. I'm not proposing every late. day. No, it's never too late. Absolutely okay. not. All right. And I think just accepting that that isn't a setback. That's literally, that is what progress in entrepreneurship mm. is. I think we're trained so much in school of a traditional path to progress and success. And literally you have to got to get 90% to be a good grade and things like that. And this world is just not that at all. Like you hear enough entrepreneur stories and you learn almost every business did this, started going down one direction, pivoted, went another direction, rebuilt threw everything away based on what they learned and started something new, whatever it might be. So it's, I think many first time founders think they're like alone in that, or they think it's like a failure that you're, you're saying this first thing we tried isn't going to work and we're going to do something different. It's just, that's just the reality of building a company. Was there ever a time when you pivoted so hard that you were like, maybe I should just start a new company? Like, why do you keep going with the same brand and same company, Tom? I never got to that point. We always at least stayed within the world of marketing technology that we were selling mm -hmm. into brands to some degree. Okay. I don't really have an amazing answer for you as to why. I think it was yeah. just like, let's at least, I think we were always trying to build off of what we had learned. It was mm -hmm. like, okay, this didn't work because of X, Y, Z. So let's tweak it and go over here. And we think this idea will be better, but then you try that idea for a year and you realize, oh, well, that has... ABC wrong with it. And then you go from there. I think mm -hmm. had we just gone and been like totally new industry, totally new product. I, I think that would have been a much bigger challenge for us. Yeah. Gil, are you around the same boat or? I think the answer is right there. And also the team has a shared experience now that you can leverage from. And, and every failure that is roughly in the same domain is you just increased your knowledge and decreased the risk in that new idea you're pivoting into significantly. And that's worth a lot. This is the gold in entrepreneurship. I think like when you fail and you get that knowledge and experience, it's like sweat experience too. If you don't forget that very deeply, what is true and what's not and applying that to a new idea. And now suddenly with fresh capital or fresh mind is like the second chance or the third chance that you ever always wanted mm -hmm. and you make it work. All right. Yeah. Makes sense. Okay. What is your number one piece of advice for a first-time entrepreneur, Tom? Something around perspective. Like uh, I was debating between like finding great co-founders, but that's, mm -hmm. I think, a no-brainer that you need. I think for me, I always tried to really keep things into perspective. Like whether it's just how lucky we are to even for us be in America, building a software company and like all the opportunities we were given. I mean, I've literally just walked into a college 40 minutes from where I grew up and had money 
being offered to me in a business plan competition. Mm -hmm. That's incredibly fortuitous in the first place. I didn't have to move countries, learn a new language. Like I meet people, I meet entrepreneurs that have had to go through crazy things. And then on top of that, like we were building marketing software. Yeah, we're competitive. We want to win. We want to build the best company we can, but like, we're not, I'm not, we're not going to the medical world trying to save lives or things like that. So even on our worst days, I try to just keep all that in perspective. And I think that's what, that's been a huge reason for me of being able to just keep getting up day after day and keep going through all the hard times we've been through. So I think Gratitude. perspective is probably the big, yeah, gratitude. Love gratitude. Big fan of that. <laughs> yeah. Gil, what's your number one piece of advice for a first time entrepreneur? I think not that different, same lines, maybe managing your psyche and underneath there, underneath that there is a resilience, forgiving yourself, gratitude. Be yeah. easy on yourself. Be easy on yourself and, and believing in your ability to, to do what you were set out to do uh, and managing, managing your highs and lows so that you can continue this for a good amount of time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was just going to say, actually, that I admire the fact that you continued to work on metadata even when VCs told you that you had no business. And just continuing to work despite the fact that people tell you no, I think is like an important piece. Not that I am an entrepreneur, but I imagine that you get told no so many times that you just kind of have to keep going. <laughs> yeah, it almost, I think, yeah, I think it almost becomes a drive to an extent. Like if you believe in your way and 20 knows there is a yes, and then you did what you said you'll do and the investor is, yeah, this is awesome. You start thinking like, Okay, I can create some of this reality. Like, I mean, of course, some people are not everyone is going to agree. That's part of the game. I always found it really comforting to know any big company you look up to. That's what they went through. Facebook was founded here in Boston, where I am. They couldn't get any VCs in Boston to give them money. Look what they built. Airbnb, people thought they were crazy when they started Airbnb. I think there's articles of they had the 100 no's before they got their first yes, whatever it was. So, I always, I read a lot in the early days when I was shifting from being a biology major to I want to start a company. And you just realize this is just how it works. Like mm. most time, most of the time you're going to get a ton of no's before you get that first yes. Yeah. All right. Great. Thank you very much for joining the podcast. I appreciate your time. Gil, where can we find you and what you're working on online? I am on LinkedIn, so Gil Alouche, also Gil at metadata.io, always happy to help out, uh, especially to, to fellow entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs. What am I working on right now? Growing the company. Uh, you can see me on LinkedIn, trying to hire the next, the next wave of, of people to the company. All right, sweet. Tom, where can we find you and what you're working on online? LinkedIn as well and Tom at Jabbit.com. All right. Thank you very much, guys. If you like this episode of the Hacker New Podcast, don't forget to like it, share it, and subscribe to it. I also want to let you know that these guys are nominated for Startup of the Year. At the time of this recording, I don't have all the information on how you can vote, but I will put it in the show notes for you. Please go vote for them. And if you, and this episode was hosted by me, Amy Tom, produced by Hacker Noon, and edited by our lovely audio wizard, Alex. Thank you so much. Stay weird, and I'll see you on the internet. Bye-bye.